are here. And the 11FS offices in WeWork Devonshire Square in London for episode 77 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Mike Novogratz is still all in, a Brazilian bank is launching a stablecoin, and I'm mining crypto on my Razer computer. Well, maybe I'm not, but I do have a Razer laptop. Uh, all this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. Alrighty, I am your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by the returning Tina Baker-Taylor. Tina Baker-Taylor, how are you? I'm good. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. <laughs> wow, you sounded so... No- that sounded sarcastic. No! Merry Christmas! <laughs> there we go. That's what we need. We need that enthusiasm. How have you been? Are you well? I'm good, thanks. Good to have you back. Thanks and for we're joined me. by a new guest. John, I'm not going to try and say your last name. It's Dietrich. It's a lot easier than it looks. Wow, that was that was producer Petrit's guess. Uh, well done, producer Petrit. Uh, but you are the future of finance reporter at Quartz. Hello, thanks Welcome for having me in. to the show. Good to have you. Thanks for making it through the maze that is Devonshire Square and finding your way here. All right, let's get kicked off, shall we? First story comes from Bloomberg, and this is again about Mike Novogratz. He explains in a Q&A why he's still all in on crypto in a Q&A format. Main takeaway, he says, you know, what's next for crypto? Uh, they've invested in a company called High Fidelity, which is a virtual world, um, and think about Second Life um, doing $500 million a year of GDP. Um, and if that was real money traded back and forth in a virtual world, uh, that'll be where the use case for blockchain really works. Interesting. There's a project called De- Central land, it's a bit like that. That's sort of out there. Um, we world. Yeah, there's, there's a few of those out there. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we world's gone now. I mean, I mean, if you think about the phenomenon that was Fortnite mm-hmm. and just how that's taken over the world, and it is you know, kind of accounting for massive amounts of revenue. If you could expand that open world battle royale or do other games in there, the Ready Player One universe, and you can buy land in it. Well, that's what WeWorld did. So they had um, 180 million Weemies, which were their avatars. Mm. And so the Weemies had to be fed and clothed and housed and, you know, you needed to, like, take care of them. Um, and so there was a its own currency, you know, kind of like this digital gold thing that is embedded in some of these games that you could mine. But, you know, obviously there was a fiat conversion in there to buy this stuff. So I think, you know, gaming and crypto goes really well together. I, this seems like a natural pairing. Um, it just, this isn't the first virtual world we've seen. Um, and, you know, what what is the market scope for that? Like, how many people want to live in a virtual world? Do, is it exponential? Um, and we world is no more. Yeah. So the, there are more stories of these the things that have failed than there are stories of them that have succeeded. But I guess that wasn't his main point, right? He, he also talks about how his strategy for Galaxy has evolved as crypto prices have imploded. And, and he said, well, actually, it's not a dramatic shift. They have a business that they think can break even next year, if not make money next year. They're not nervous. They're frustrated that their investors have lost money, but they've got cash to run the business for a long time. Uh, and he keeps uh, telling his guys, we're, we're sort of putting, they're a surfer getting themselves in shape for them when the next wave comes. Interesting. That was interesting to read. And I was thinking, you know, so it sounds like he's almost saying the next wave comes next year. And if, if history is any guide, you know, sometimes peak to trough could be, is it next year? Is it the year after? Is it the year after that? So, I mean, you know, I guess not surprisingly, Mike Novogratz is still bullish, but um, I almost wondered if maybe. Maybe that's a little bit optimistic. These things, these cycles, how long do they take? It's really 
and I think also he has to talk about that because he has investors that he doesn't want them to pull the plug a little bit, right? If he says, well, it's not going to be three or four years till you stop making a return and your investors go, well, how much is it really going to go up if I wanted to pull this thing out in five years? So it's it's kind of in a different place. Well, in season, business professionals forecast for a variety of climates, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're seeing a number of crypto firms that potentially expanded perhaps too quickly or didn't appreciate that the market was not going to continually just go up and you know their planning may have lacked um, some of the foresight that we would expect from someone like Novogratz, right? Well, so, exactly. That's the thing. Because Mike Novogratz, of course, is famed investor, did well in capital markets, has seen many cycles of many other asset bubble. classes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so he, he's sort of speaking from a position of you know some authority, you would think. Um, but there was a recent tweet I saw by him. In fact, it was uh, about an hour ago, as we record this on the 18th of December, He's quoting uh, an article uh, from Zero Hedge where CNBC's crypto quote Uber Bull Brian Kelly has now gone short Bitcoin, and uh, you know famously he was staying long for, for quite some time. And Mike says, when the true believers cave, it's usually a bullish sign. This is the third uh, article on perma bulls that I've seen where they throw in the towel, uh, and that's kind of bullish, right? It sounds like it. And, you know, and Novogratz suggests in the same article that, you know, he feels like he should have been making money on the way down, too. It's not his job yes. to necessarily just make money on the way yes. back up. And you can go you can go short in these markets and you can position differently. But, um, yeah, just thinking about your point about, um, you know, he's he has to remain bullish. But at the same time, um, he does have this market history where he he knows that the tide goes out and he knows that when the tide goes out, a lot of people uh, go bust if they're not prepared for it. So we're really going to find out next year if he really has prepared for it the way the way you would hope. I also thought it was interesting. You know, he's still um, his view is still the the, the digital gold uh, kind mm-hmm. of way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because you you listen to people like, I don't know, like David Chom talking about how, he, you know, some people are still hoping that crypto emerges more into the transaction usage. And people say, you know, that's what it was originally designed for. And that's what they're really looking for. So it's interesting to see this contrast of, you know, is it a digital gold? Is it a means of transaction or a transaction system? Well, I think that's the difference too between a cap markets guy and somebody driven by ideology, right? So, you know, if you're in it for the revolution and you, you want to, you know, take over the way people, you know, transact with each other and spend and save money um, and have personal control over your wealth, um, that's probably not necessarily the position that Novogratz is coming from. Um, so the perspective, you know, what motivates you, I think, is is an indicator um, and what you're driven by. It was Todd McDonald from R3 who once said crypto is a bit like a Rorschach test. If you're not familiar with that, that's the inkblot test, the famous test where they show you some random blobs of ink on a piece of paper and what you think that represents visually says more about you than it does about the bits of ink. And I think crypto is kind of like that. What you see in it actually says more about you than what crypto is at this stage because it's so early. Some people want it to be the thing that remakes society. Some people want it to be a really nice investment. Some people just want it to be interesting. And mm-hmm. I think that's um, those narratives and beliefs are really interesting because we're always looking for the story. But I think sort of zooming back out to that point about, you know, we're in this bear market. Uh, there's a guy from Cap Markets that's seen bear markets. He's seen things go down before, knows that you need the runway to stay alive. And if you do, when it, if and when it does come back, you're really well positioned. If it doesn't, you eventually starve out. And the question is, 
can these uh, these people who are true believers keep on in for whatever their motivating factor is, whether it's digital gold or something else? And just and just thinking about that other point. Um, you know, I've been looking for, you know, we're in the, the crypto winter, you know, we're talking about the bear market, but where, where is the transact, where is the, where do we still have traction? Where are there still transactions happening or where is, where are things still taking place? And um, I was having a conversation with an information security guy, former, former FBI cyber uh, agent, I guess you'd call him. And he was saying that, you know, on the dark web, it's still, you know, uh, business as usual, like these, these cryptocurrencies are still widely used to purchase things. And I kind of, I look at that and I'm like, well, that use case is thriving. Come on. It's, Come on. It's <laughs> so, so here's the interesting thing. So I was on a panel with the head of strategy from Europol about three weeks ago. And what he was saying is that you actually see a whole lot less Bitcoin being used on dark markets. If anything, using Bitcoin is a great way to leave a trail of breadcrumbs for the FBI to find you. And he said he was surprised. This particular guy, and his information may not be as good as yours. He was surprised that people didn't seem, at least the criminals he watches, didn't seem to care that much about the trail. And, I, he, I, I and he said that he was seeing transactions in all kinds of crypto. They didn't seem particularly wedded to Bitcoin. They were, he said, in his experience, they were willing to use just about anything. But well, he said it was widely used. Monero that was, his was take. kind Monero's. of designed for that. Right? Absolutely. And he was surprised it wasn't more used because it should be better. So it depends on the type of crime you're looking for. If it's the really scary stuff, the stuff we that I think everybody would find abhorrent, that's where you see Monero. If it's the low-level drug buying, you still see plenty of Bitcoin. But actually, you know, this is the sort of thing that a lot of nation states tolerate, especially if it's in low volumes. They're going after the organized criminals who are profiting from that and creating a trail of breadcrumbs to organized criminals. Well, we sort of had those you know, already. I'm going to venture, I guess, here that there is some kid somewhere in Chicago, Illinois, that is paying for his weed with Venmo. You know what I mean? Like literally. Yeah, yeah, you can probably look online and I'm find sure. that right now. I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure. I, I don't have any cash. I'll take Venmo. Those peer-to-peer apps in fintech. Yeah. Yes, that's that is a known use case. Like uh, there's one in the UK that's done by one of the the top four banks where that was an issue. Definitely. Yeah, good old-fashioned money. Mm, how about that? All right, I got to move to the next story. The next story comes from CoinDesk and this is about a Brazilian bank using Ethereum to issue a stable Coin. Um, the national Brazilian National Social Development Bank will launch a pilot in January 2019. Since the bank has a history of corruption scandals involving misallocated funds and alleged bribes, the creators hope public BNDES blockchain data will help bolster trust in state-owned banks. For the pilot, the bank will issue several hundred dollars worth of BNDES to the national film agency, a film distribution company. I mean, this feels like very small scale, right? It's very different to the the uh, petrodollar and the blue Well, it bill. sounds like they're a development bank, right? That I think that's what that this particular yes, bank absolutely. does, right? So, you know, we're talking infrastructure, we're talking um, you know, education projects. Um, what I think is interesting is we're going to build a stable Brazilian real, okay? But the real itself isn't stable at all. It's highly volatile. So I checked um, this afternoon, and on average, the volatility for the real against the U.S. dollar has been about 12% consistently over the last three years. So anything in double digits is high volatility. By comparison, the euro has experienced an average of about 5% against the dollar. And then if you can compare two stable currencies together, the euro and the Swissy, it's an average of 4% volatility. So the, the base asset is already super volatile. So we're going to build it into a stable coin to now you've got 
essentially a volatile stable coin. Yeah. It, the whole thing just doesn't make any sense to me, and maybe it's because you know we we all kind of disagree with the, the word stablecoin anyway. What does it exactly mean? But you brought up the um, Petro, and this last couple of weeks we saw articles around the government allegedly, uh, you know, I'm not sure we've seen facts um, taking pensioners' money from their state pensions, converting it into Petro, and then redepositing it back into their wallets. Um, and what's interesting about that is that banks don't take or exchange Petros. So how are these people supposed to spend the money, right? So going back to Brazil, is this going to be easily spendable? Or if this bank is known for scandals around misappropriations of funds, is it not interesting that they're putting money into films, the mob likes to fund films. It's a good way to launder some money. Um, or building roads and bridges. Money never goes missing when you build infrastructure. Or, you know, education projects. Like, the whole thing to me just is whiffy. Yeah. I don't well, like yeah. it. Yeah, and you, I mean, this idea of you have a credibility problem, so you're going to somehow use crypto or blockchain to get past your credibility problem just doesn't seem to work. Yeah, there's an know? irony there, which is the technology used at its best should be transparent, but actually it's still so nascent and infantile that you, by using it, you make the opposite statement from a publicity standpoint. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine if in Malaysia they said, all right, we've got a new idea, 1MDB, our, 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 our fund, we're just going to redo this with, with crypto. Like, it, it wouldn't fix anything. And optically, that's so bad. If they said we're going to redo it with DLT, suddenly things mm -hmm. would change. And I, I hold a candle for this. I can feel half the listeners going, oh, I hate that stuff. You've got to have the coins to make it make sense. It's got to be permissionless. Go with me, guys. If you establish that you can have the transparency and the credibility, then you can start to get to the really important stuff, which is towards value transfer. Well, and to be fair to them and um, to uh, you know Ethereum um, and the project designers here, there is a smart contract element to this, right, which is supposed to propagate that transparency. So if it does what it's supposed to do, and funds are only released upon the satisfying of X number of requirements, and it is fully transparent, then In principle, we wish them well. Yeah. I have a funny feeling we won't be talking in five years about, like, oh, my goodness, they transformed how governments fund projects. Um, I think it'll be something else that does that, and this will be long forgotten, unfortunately. Um, and it, it does sort of speak to um, the type of stuff Coindesk are having to report at the moment because we're in crypto winter and government doing a thing is like this vague, desperate attempt to grab onto credibility in a bear market. Uh, it, it says a lot when that's the best headline you've got in the given week. Um, but kind of moving on, I think there are still people out there trying to build things. Um, so this comes from Business Insider and there's a company trying to solve one of the biggest pain points in crypto and they just raised $8 million, which... Yay. In this market, at this time, yeah, right? What a time to do it. And they could, uh, and it could help lure big Wall Street funds to the burgeoning industry. So Two Sigma and Consensus have invested $8 million into uh, Trustology. And of course, Trustology, for those of you who are observant, we did have the CEO, Alex Batlin, on the show about four or five weeks ago. They tackle one of the key day-to-day -day challenges of crypto, safely holding the digital assets in a way that protects them from thieves, in other words, custody, um, and allowing the rightful owner to get 
quick and easy access. Now, of course, um, Alex Batlin spent best part of 18 months at BNY Mellon. Before that, it was at UBS. This is an institutional uh, banking guy that's gone into the crypto world and sees a real opportunity for it. Um, do we see uh, this as being the beginning of something new? Is this funding significant in the timing of it? Well, I had one question. Is it um, Was it started by consensus? Is it already a consensus spoke? It was already a consensus spoke. Okay. Um, hence, that I believe they are just following on the new part is from Two Sigma. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, it is. it seems like you're seeing a little bit more... Uh, I don't want to say headlines, but it seems like that's more of the focus is on on things like that, like accessibility and usability and interfaces and, and that kind of thing. And it feels like this is a you know a continuing of that. But yeah, it's obviously one of the the biggest problems keeping those keeping those secure. And you know that sounds like a, a positive development. It sounds like they have some some bullish people on board. And Two Sigma are a pretty meaty organization, right? They're more than 1,500 people. Um, they are, I believe, they've been in the sort of data-driven asset management space for quite some time. Um, they provide, so they, they were one of the first real sort of uh, asset management shops that were founded around we're going to use quantum data sort of 10, 15 years ago. And that's their competitive differentiator. So versus a BlackRock, versus a, a PEMCO or Schroders who have a whole suite of things and they do this too. This is a specialist in just looking at data. So you get the sense that they've done the homework when they've made this investment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the Trustology um, solution is interesting. Um, I'm also one of the unpopular people that believes that if traditional custody incumbents can sort themselves out, then they'll probably just roll over all of the crypto custody. Um, Is that because they already have the reputation and they're already... They've got the balance sheet to cover Mm -hmm. a loss, basically. And yes, they already have, you know, institutional confidence, right? Um, Now, that won't be the right solution for everybody. And I think it will only take one whoopsie for that to confidence to be knocked, which is why I think that they're taking their time. I'd love to see a really strong JV that would kind of solve both both sides of that well, equation. Well, so that's the point here, right? It, it didn't even need to be a JV. Trustology could be a vendor to to a lot of those bigger exactly. custodians. And I like Alex's background, and I think he brings credibility to the space where, you know, some of the other... Um, emerging crypto custodians don't necessarily have that pedigree that sits well, well, behind so to them. Well, to the point, right, you've got Coinbase now offering crypto. There's a whole bunch of players out there. Yeah, but they'll, t- they'll tell you that they're waiting for State Street to come in and just take their business. Yeah. That's what they expect to happen. I fully expect it, or you know, to acquire that business, right, and acquire the technology. Ledger have done a partnership with Nomura. We're seeing the beginnings of this, and to me, it's less interesting in pure crypto, and it's much more interesting in a world where assets are natively digital um, and represented as tokens rather than assets are natively pieces of paper or natively uh, balances in a, in a database somewhere that we then try and move assets um, by sending messages to each other. I think that this is a part of that story, that bigger picture of the capital markets 2.0 story. Well, the best part of this story is that they raised capital in this market. Mm-hmm. So that is a testament to the solution, to the team, and I think to this commitment in you know the crypto asset community to kind of clean up some of the stuff that maybe has been unproductive to its growth. So to me, this is only positive. Um, and whilst we're in this crypto winter phase, they've got 
plenty of time to use that money to build some cool stuff. My prediction for 2019, um, foreshadowing a prediction show we're going to do, is is that 2019 is the year DLT comes back. And you know they've been quietly building since 2015. As you get into 2020, especially, those things start to hit scale, but they'll gain credibility next year, and this is a part of that story. Alrighty, next story comes from Cointelegraph and Gazprom Bank uh, in Switzerland are going to launch crypto services next year. So they've partnered with, um, they, they call them fintech startup Avalok. They're not really a fintech startup. Um, and they've partnered with uh, Metico. Uh, we were just talking about um, people who offer custody. Metico are a startup. Uh, Avalok are a vendor of core banking solutions uh, in the oldie-worldie sense. Um, and they are, uh, essentially, most of your bank runs a bit of software in the middle of it that holds the balances that, you know, it's their accounting engine. And there are a bunch of providers of this software. Temenos, FIS, Finastra, Avaloco are one of those players. And what's happened is this company, Metico, um, have come along and said, ah, if you've got one of those systems internally, those battle-tested, hardened systems that have been around for many, many years, we've got the software to help you manage crypto with that as that older software as the back end. And so this is a partnership between Avalok and Metico. But again, it comes to offering custody and chain of custody around crypto for traditional banks who might have institutional clients that want to do that. And Avalok, of course, uh, were born in Switzerland, have a lot of Swiss private banking clients. This makes a lot of sense. So, but who's who's the primary? Is it, is it, a, is it a JV or is one funding the other? Uh, so this is yeah, this is like an announcement was... of a partnership, effectively. Mm. Um, so, but the key here is Gazprom. So who's providing the capital? So Gazprom Bank in Switzerland are using a service that is provided by. So this is like an announcement of we've won a customer from uh, Avalok and Metico. So it's not an investment. It's like Avalok and Metico going. A bank has bought our product, and they're actually going to launch those crypto services. That's mm-hmm. what's happening here. Via Gazprom Bank. Yes. Yeah, I'm out. <laughs> um, so the the interesting thing about the Metico solution, though, is they are using HSMs, um, and we've not seen the use of hardware security modules too much in crypto solutions. But actually, going back to your previous point, Tina, you would expect that in crypto, in custody. And we've mm-hmm. always had this hot storage, cold storage, or you do everything in cold storage, you unplug it from the internet. Mm-hmm. We've had HSMs for 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Like, that is, hardware is still a thing, and you can still use it in crypto. Any thoughts on this one? Well, and, and that's um, and the service module for Trustology, but that's that's purely kind of a hot wallet type solution, right? That's cloud hosted, so it's yes. quite different from this then. Correct. Okay. My under- I'd have to speak to Alex, and in fact, if you want to know more about uh, what Alex was talking about from Trustology, he, he was in episode 71 of Blockchain Insider, where he actually joined us on the show and gave us a quick overview, so go back and listen for sure. Uh, he does that towards the beginning of the show. Just a reminder, listeners, this episode is brought to you by R3 Blockchain. Uh, tons of industries can reap major benefits insurance healthcare pharma automotive you name it and you can discover the potential for your business with r3's quarter platform and they offer privacy interoperability integration and consensus and it includes mission critical features that every complex business needs including the world's only blockchain application firewall the quarter platform blockchain for every business in every industry head over to r3.com for more information All right, next story comes from investinblockchain.com. Hmm, wonder what they want you to do. (laughs) Wonder if they have an angle. So this is a headline, though. It's a really interesting one. Coinbase US customers get instant PayPal 
withdrawals. So as part of the uh, 12 Days of Coinbase program, uh, I didn't know they had a program called 12 Days of Coinbase. Oh, really? Yeah, that's oh. brand new information. Yeah, Google, uh, Twitter that. There's been uh, lots of... Uh but they've announced support of instant withdrawals through PayPal for their U.S. customers. Um, limited uh, PayPal withdrawals as their partnership does not support the depositing of funds to Coinbase accounts from PayPal. Um, but the statement says these withdrawals are not only fast, they're free and incur no fees. I'm curious how much demand there will be for this. And, you know, and maybe there will be a lot. It, it, part of the reason this caught my eye is it made me think about uh, you know, it made me think about PayPal. And in some of the early days of PayPal, which was obviously created, you know, to be this internet payment solution, right? And some of their early customers said, hey, look, we really want to be able to write a check from this. We want to, and, mm. and PayPal was kind of like, are you kidding me? You want to be able to write checks from this? And Elon Musk said recently, he's like, look, if people wanted to write checks, we should have just given them checks for Christ's sake. And it kind of made me think, well, maybe this is, it's funny how far the world has come that if Coinbase customers need a quick way to cash out in fiat or something like that and cash out through something like, like PayPal, I just thought there was a certain kind of irony to it. And I don't know. I think that who knows? Maybe that could make uh, holding money in, in crypto easier. You know, just kind of you, you have these Coinbase holdings and you can easily, you know, use that somewhere else. That sounds like it could be promising. The convenience side, I totally get. What's interesting to me is the no fees part. Uh, if you were to look at some of the other uh, exchanges out there, they've started increasing their fees on withdrawals. This is kind of moving in the opposite direction. This is very consumer friendly. This is assuming you're scared about the market. You want to get money out quickly. Crap, I'm just going to grab it and pull it into my PayPal Coinbase are going, okay, here you go. Here's a really easy way. Very, very consumer-friendly move. What I also think is interesting about that, if you're going to look at that kind of the, the scope of, you know, are these big tech companies going to turn into financial institutions? If this works and there is a big appetite for it, and it's not just about people getting out of a bear market in short term, um, does this give rise to Amazon and Facebook and everybody else saying, oh, fine, we'll go ahead and let you cash out of your crypto too. If it works, you would think they'd want to. You know, you would think that yeah. Amazon Pay would say, sure, sure, we can, you know, boost some of our usership pretty quickly that way with, mm. with the demographic that we like. I don't know. Their profits are doing pretty well at the moment. Do they need this regulatory risk all of a sudden? They want, they want Amazon Pay to catch on. They and, do. And, it's never, and it never really, you know, they're one of the very few wallet providers that didn't increase in market share this year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, compared to Visa Checkout or certainly PayPal and others. So they're, they're trying. They've not been a success. You know, it's one of the few things Amazon... Well, Amazon can't get payments. Yeah, they, they just yeah. can't seem to figure them out. But I mean, like if if you're as a business, like the big tech players, the Western big tech players seem to try and dip their toe into financial services in the least regulated way they can possibly. I think what's going to draw the attention of regulators, cash out your crypto at Amazon, suddenly you're going to be under the uh, sort of the bright light of the regulator and maybe they don't want that. That's a good point. That could kind of foil this, you know, payments is a relatively light touch way for them to get into finance. But if, you know, starting start mixing it with crypto and maybe it gets more complicated for suddenly Amazon. Suddenly everybody goes, huh. Yeah. All right. Next story comes from Cointelegraph. Uh, Ethereum unique addresses break 50 million. Uh, active wallet number, though, keeps dropping. Um, on Saturday, the Ethereum network saw a daily increase of 168,000 unique crypto wallets. The highest historical daily growth of unique addresses took place on January the 4th, 2018, with 350,000 new addresses created. 
The number of active Ethereum addresses has been decreasing steadily throughout 2018, having peaked at around 1.1 million on the 4th of Jan, um, and it's now uh, fallen by around 70% to about 300,000. I mean, if this was a startup that had a million users and dropped to 350,000, you'd be like, oh, something's going very, very wrong. Mm. Um, I mean, and you'd be looking for them to pivot. Do you read more into this than bear market going to happen bear market things going to happen in a bear market well i think ethereum specifically is interesting or or differentiated from some of the other tokens because so much is built on top of the ethereum network well and the whole ico bubble was sort of Correct. built on its back yeah so i think we're seeing a number of you know people getting in and out of positions that they had or things just blowing up and there is nothing to get out of. Um, and so some of those accounts are, are going to be dormant. Also, with um, projects wrapping up and, and giving money back or being told they have to give money back, I mean, there there is a, a slowdown specifically around that particular network. And ICO is having used the ERC-20, um, I think, is having an impact on that network. I guess if you're Mike Novogratz, you're watching that and you're hoping that it'll bottom out and that'll be maybe that'll be a buy signal. I don't know. And well, so the, the the dirty secret is of all crypto is nobody's using it for anything other than speculation. But at one point, nobody was using it for really for anything other than either a curiosity or b buying drugs. So the crypto that, kitties. Yeah. Let's- well. They could use it for a whole bunch of stuff. And the famous VC saying is, you know, um, reasonable investors invest in businesses. Um, decent, very good investors invest in things that show promise as a business. And great investors invest in making markets and things that don't exist yet that would drive revenue. You could argue that's still out there to be grabbed with crypto, but it's not clear what that is. And there's people have thrown a whole bunch of things against the wall in the bull market. Unclear what those things are. But I did like uh, what Vitalik said in our interview with him last week, where he said he just likes the idea of cryptography upgraded. And let's let's worry about how people use that later. But there's so much more to do to just make cryptography persistent and cryptography to be accurate as of right now, not accurate as when I signed the transaction. Uh, this reminded me as well. Uh, there's a really good website. Has anybody seen 2018.ethereuminreview.com? I saw it because I was getting ready for the show. Some really nice, helpful data in there. Loved it. Um, so it all started at block number 4,832,686. Um, and that block was for 333 ETH. And, and I just love that they take you through a year block by block. Um, mm, and then at cool. various block numbers, various things happen. Um, and then there will be approximately 2 million blocks this year. They had EdCon in Toronto around block 5,200,003. Um, the amount of Ethereum transactions, like this is just data porn. It really, really is. And really the, nice data visualization, which is a little hard to communicate on a podcast, but check it out. It looks good. So there was um, the things that I think are relevant for listeners is there were 750,000, uh, sorry, 75,000 uh, ERC-based tokens, of which 74,000 were erc twenty. Uh, which is kind of the the token that launched them all. Um, but ERC721, a.k.a. Um, the non-fungible token, only had about 1,200. Um, and there's some lesser-known ones like ERC777, 998, which 
really represent some interesting futures that, that didn't actually have much activity. But the projects in those could end up being more interesting over the long term. That's, that's another uh, top tip. Um, of course, CryptoKitties ruled the roost, as you would expect them to do. Uh, there's also a story about um, smart contract security. And they're looking into, you know, what were some of the things that broke the audits? Like, this is just a, a fantastic page. Um, I'd love to see more stuff like that. And live dashboards just really make my day, frankly. Alrighty, next story uh, comes from Motherboard, uh, which is Motherboard's uh, part of the Vice Network, Vice Media. Razer, the gaming laptop company and gaming peripherals, peripherals? How do you say that word? Peripherals? Peripherals, thank you. That company, I've only had half a beer, Jesus, uh, wants gamers to mine cryptocurrency for store credit. You know, reading that story, it sounds like a lot of people were, at least some people were confused by that one. And it sounds like you allow them to use your your computer. It, it mines crypto. They get the crypto and you get uh, some kind of um, kind of like digital merchandise that you can use on the on the gaming website. Am I wrong? You, that- it's like store credit. So yeah. you can just use it to buy stuff from them. Right. And I'm like, but why? Like, okay. So if I was to try and go through their rationale, they sell high spec gaming equipment which can also be used to mine reasonably effectively and why not if you've got that kit sitting out there buy more stuff from razor and have credit to buy more stuff from razor just from having your laptop idling sounds great in the marketing pitch but when you realize yeah but somewhere in there there's a crappy deal because i don't know what crypto they're mining i don't know what they're making for that crypto and i don't know what their conversion rate to store credit is because usually if somebody's offering loyalty the way they make money on the loyalty scheme is by giving you less value than you've earned them. Or ensuring that you never spend it. Redemption below book value mm-hmm. is the, the technical term. Mm-hmm. So I guess this just get- strikes me as just bullshit. Um, these game points can also be redeemed for rewards and skins, uh, like you know, skins for inside a video game. You can get things like esports tickets. So like, I do think there's something between... Ownership of skins in Fortnite, ownership of uh, or access to esports events and ticketing and like that whole virtual world, something may come from that. But I don't think it's, ah, you know what, on one one part of me says this is really prescient from Razer, but another part of me says it's like trying to sell uh, video on the internet in 1989. It's like great, but just way too early. Well, and I don't know what they're doing in my computer while they're mining cryptocurrency. And as you say, Grr, what are they're after me coins? Yeah, what are they mining? <laughs> what what are they have access to? I mean, that that whole idea. There was a, there was a, uh, like a Trojan horse at the beginning of the year, that um, people oh, yeah, were if- mining things off of your mobile phone, and it, may, it must have taken forever. And my argument at that time was, well, how much could they possibly be making for the effort? And somebody's response to me was, if you got. Two million phones, and you know you managed to get a buck at the end of the year. You had two million bucks, right? I mean, the tiny little baby. I love that, that math, nobody, by the way. Yeah. If 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 I had a dollar for every phone I infected, and I infected two million phones, I'd have two million dollars. Shut up. <laughs> My point here is that you know, tiny tiny Marshall games over time. Every- shut your mouth. <laughs> Um, so over time, you amass this huge fortune and nobody notices the difference. You know, a bit like, you know, skimming 
a tiny bit out of the cash register. It's almost like the plot of Hackers. But but yeah, but it's like you're Great infected. Great movie reference. So and many cool points for that. Yeah, so I don't want anything in, infecting my, my computer for yeah. free stuff. I, I generally no. think like trying to use idle time on a laptop to mine stuff just hasn't worked. Yeah, Ever since setting at home anywhere. and folding at home, like... That was great, but actually it made your machine run like a Maybe dog. Maybe we can do that with all of the U.S. government laptops and they can pay for their wall with the cryptocurrency oh, that they shots mine. shots fired. Beautiful. Yeah. All righty, next story comes from Medium. Um, and this one is uh, about uh, why they are forking the 0x protocol. And it comes from uh, Tian Li uh, of Hydra Protocol. And it's, of course, 0x has been one of those protocols that's been around for some time. It's spawned a whole bunch of projects that do uh, decentralized insert thing here but mostly decentralized exchanges um and he he sort of says which you know is an interesting space we saw i think it was ether delta were being investigated at one point i don't know if it was the sec or or doj the sec and they were fined four hundred thousand dollars which is basically what they owed but we've seen others like Radar Delay and, and start keep operating. And there's something about uh, infrastructure that can operate without a central party from a resilience standpoint that I still find interesting. So this space isn't all bad, it's creative, but there's a lot of technical challenges. So it makes sense to me that somebody would come out and say, well, we're going to take this base protocol of 0x and we're going to go off in our own direction. He says, our perspective of what's most urgent has diverged. Being on the front lines, it's painfully apparent that most decentralized exchanges to today are plagued by rudimentary problems such as order collision, front running, and poor liquidity. That last one being the obvious one in that if you're seeing 4,000 transactions a day for a couple of ETH each, yeah, you've got a liquidity problem. Um, front running, of course, yeah. I mean, just seeing the order coming and getting there before them and, and kind of off going on the reverse of the trade. But is that unique to decentralized exchanges? It's not, Those but it's, it's particularly easy on decentralized yeah. exchanges, yeah. partially because um, the order book is open and, and there's no, no nobody kind of managing that. Yeah. And then order collision as well, because there's no central place in which that is happening no centralized order book mm. like just managing the state of that order book is a real pain in the ass and the the front running is kind of disappointing because you know you would love to see that problem solved that's one of the big gripes about traditional markets and traditional market structuring you would love to see the front running problem you know kind of kind of solved and that's one of the hopes you'd have is that some new structure like this could begin to to work on that and so you know that's why I'm, I, I would love to see it. I don't know how it would work but I would love to see that problem tackled probably. which is why Colin G Platt um, peace be upon his field um, <laughs> does often say that like there's a whole generation of people just learning stuff you learn if you work in cap markets for a year or two like mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff is like no shit guys I could have told you it but it's the typical thing of like engineer knows better um, like there's uh, one of our non-exec directors at 11FS often says about you know the engineering mindset is if I just had enough time I could do anything um, and I don't need your damn laws I don't need your damn rules I can do it because I'm an engineer and there's a bit of that in crypto like I- bit yeah and it's like but you learn through experience and you learn through doing but sometimes that ignorance is useful sometimes you happen upon a thing something breaks through so we'll see but i'm all for people trying different solutions to that problem and maybe we will start to address the real problem which i think was your point john was that we focused very much on how do we decentralize for the sake of decentralizing rather than how do we solve problems with markets and does this tool allow us to get there 
Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, talk about, you know, if, as far as kind of learning from traditional markets or established markets, you see a lot of them out there and they're, they're named, they, you know, liquidity is always a problem. And so they're always named after something liquid sounding like there's one here in London called Aquas, for example, uh-huh. there's always these liquid names. And he's talking about, I think, um, a token or, or part of his protocol is called, I think the aqua or something. Hydro like, protocol. The, the hydro mm-hmm. pro- protocol. So I was kind of like, all right, all right. You know, they're on the same, <laughs> they're on the same track in terms of marketing. Market the thing. Just make it sound like the thing you want. Yeah, I, yeah, I hadn't spotted that. Nicely done. Um, all right, stories we didn't have time to cover. Um, Facebook blockchain arm booms, uh, even amid crypto bear market. I've got Popeye in my head, like wearing a Facebook T-shirt. Um, but yeah, they've been growing that f- uh, blockchain arm. And uh, of course, shepherded by uh, David Marcus, the former CEO of PayPal, run the Messenger Group. That's a heavy hitter. There's definitely, I, I guess, more of a uh, crypto plus plus approach coming mm. from big tech, and yeah. that's when it start to you know start to take this stuff seriously. To me, that's the narrative: crypto plus plus. Um, and the reason I think that's the narrative might be because I interviewed Vitalik last week, and he thinks that's the narrative, and I thought that was really smart. But anyway. Uh, Definity have delayed their launch, of course, Definity being one of those Web3 projects, um, but Definity being lots of smart people working in the same room uh, with great pedigree, so watching that one with excitement. And uh, Crypto Mystery Clue suggests Tether does, in fact, have the billions it promised. And this one comes from Bloomberg. So uh, go read that one because uh, interesting to see. All right, Twitter of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week this week uh, comes from Stephen Paley. Um, and, of course, shout out Stephen Paley. If you haven't listened to him, I think it was on episode 14. He goes on a swearing run that is still one of my favorite moments on this show. Um, Google Stephen Paley and Blockchain Insider. It was just brilliant. He was talking about the guys over at Tizos at the time. Uh, all right. And the tweet here goes, the least interesting thing about Bitcoin is the price. Do we agree? I agree. I agree, too. And I mean, at the risk of, uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't bring this up again. But when I when I was talking about the FBI thing earlier and, you know, Bitcoin used on the on the dark web, to me, that's kind of a good thing. Like I look at it as like clearly this this is functioning. This this is a structure that works. You know, the mechanics are there for certain things. And it was being censorship resistant, effectively. Mm-hmm. And it's also enabling people to buy drugs without meeting a drug dealer in the streets. Well, and at, at the end of the day, you know, this is a transaction medium that can't be cut off. And, and it works for that. But it probably has other stuff. Anyway, I just look at that as this is working. It's being used. And for that reason, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, it's not the price. It's the fact that it's actually being used by, you know, a, a subset of people that I find, personally, I find it very interesting. I also think that, um, you know, we're fixated on the price. Well, we aren't. Um, but some are fixated on the price. Um, and whilst everyone has been fixated on the price, there have been a number of other things that we've started looking at. And I think one of the most important is, you know, what do we expect next year to look like? So if the price stays down where it is, you know, what does that mean? And why have we gotten there? And behaviors, to me, are really what's driving some of the lack of further movement. And I'll give you an example. So on my way over here, um, you know, I was running through my, my Twitter feed, and there was an, an, an argument amongst some of crypto Twitter um, around something that was completely ridiculous. Like you said this and I said this and now you blocked me. And it wasn't crypto, I'm sorry, it wasn't crypto related. And I thought, 
you guys just want to fight. Now you're fighting about whether strawberries are red. Like, what does this have to do with anything? So some of this kind of antagonistic, pent-up adrenaline, um, you know, Novogratz said it was testosterone. You know, I would argue that it's a, a myriad of chemicals, right? But what are you going to do with that pent-up energy? So go and build something cool. Um, and, you know, I've always said the first through the door gets shot you know will bitcoin be around in 10 or 20 years i personally think it will will it be that thing that we use as a medium of exchange probably not there'll probably be something that's developed that's more efficient easier to transmit um you know can can handle more transaction volumes etc but there's so many more things about bitcoin that are interesting there's so many more but there's not as many things that are obvious attention grabbers for mainstream media than this internet money that used yeah, to be John, bought for drugs. What are you going to go away and write about at court? I, I, I said, what am I going to do this? Christmas? I, I said, Last main, Christmas I, was easy. I, I said, like when I said mainstream, I meant like BBC News and like consumer mass market media, not specialist media who do their research and happen to come on to shows like Blockchain Insider. Clearly, I wasn't meaning them. Um, alrighty, I've got to move on because that's not all we've got for you this week. Um, Somehow, Colin's voice is still going to make an appearance on this show, despite him now being back near a field, tending that field in the cold, cold uh, weather of You know I love you, Colin G. Platt. Uh, He sat down with Anthony Lewis, Director of Research at R3, to talk about his new book, The Basics of Bitcoins and Blockchains. And what I like about this interview is it's just a really good primer. So if you've been looking to just go back and refresh on the basics, or you're listening to this show because we kind of help you with the basics occasionally this is a great interview i'm sure you'll enjoy it so over to those guys so i'm here with anthony lewis director of research at r3 and author of the basics of bitcoins and blockchains uh, a brand new book that's out we're going to talk a bit about both those things today welcome thanks for coming thank you very much it's great to be here can you tell us real quickly who are you and what the hell are you doing here sure absolutely <laughs> Um, so my name is Anthony Lewis. As you mentioned, I'm director of research at, at R3, uh, which is an enterprise software company, as your, as your listeners uh, know. Um, uh, I, I have to give a date because everyone in this industry seems to, have, uh, seems to have a date. I started working in the Bitcoin and blockchain industry full time in 2013. Um, uh, and I went from banking technology to ITBIT, which was a Bitcoin exchange. I think it was Singapore's first venture capital funded Bitcoin exchange. Interesting. ITBIT's become Paxos and, and, and they do a bunch of other things now. Um, I, I was working at ITBIT for um, about a year and a half, um, then did some independent consulting for about a year and I've been at R3 for two years. Um, since the end of last year, so for, for, the, past, for the past year, um, I've been responsible for our cash on ledger strategy. So this is kind of tokenized money, whether it's issued by central banks or, or commercial banks or, or um, kind of e-money wallets. Um, and, and in terms of ex- executing on that strategy, um, I've been involved with our central bank uh, projects. Uh, so you may have heard of things like uh, Project Jasper with Bank of Canada, Project Ubin with the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Um, you may not have heard of Project Lion Rock with the Hong Kong Monetary Authority. Um, and I've, I'm currently spending time in Bangkok with the uh, Thai Central Bank. So this is the idea of using Corda as a platform to put central bank or cash, essentially digital cash that moves between banks inside that platform. Yeah, so, so, so people talk about CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, quite a lot. And there, and there are different types of that. So I'm not at the moment talking about you, know, you and I having wallets on our smartphones 
having you know, Bank of England sterling cash uh, to, to, to pay for a coffee. Uh, what, what I've been doing with the central banks or what we've been doing with the central banks is uh, what we call wholesale um, uh, interbank payments. So this is the idea that banks can pay each other to settle between each other um, in central bank money, in, in money that's is in digital currency that's, that's issued by the central banks. And, and they do that uh, all the time, of course, um, through what's called a, a real-time gross settlement system or an RTGS. Uh, here, what we're exploring is what if we tokenize that money? What, what, what are the benefits? Is, are there benefits in terms of uh, systemic resiliency? Um, currently, there are single points of failure. Um, if in a, in a distributed ledger, can we can we make that more resilient uh, to say cyber attack or or, or, or failure? Um, there's uh, there's benefits around um, atomic transactions, so delivery versus payment. So this is banks trading financial assets with each other. So that's 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 bonds and equities and things like that. Um, and and the, the idea of, of 24 by 7 trading, which in a lot of circumstances can't happen at the moment mm -hmm. uh, because. Um, some, some, some third parties are shut, and when, when they're shut, um, you, you can't instruct them to you know, debit my account, credit your account, or, or, or make a make, make an, uh, payment or a transfer. So but with tokens, perhaps you can. So when we're talking about this, and as you said, this, this is the stuff that floats around between different large financial institution entities. We're not talking about individual wallets. Um, a lot well, specific, of the specifically certain banks. Okay. So in, in, in each, the, the more I do this, the more I understand that each country is different. Yeah. So it's very easy, and especially in this space, people generalize. People take the model that they know, usually the US, and then they say, they, they assume that the rest of the world also works like that. But that's, that's not the case. And just to illustrate that, um, in the UK, um, not all banks in the UK have a bank account with the Bank of England. Yeah. It's quite a hierarchical structure. So there's a, there's a club of of banks that do have accounts with the Bank of England, and other banks who don't have to use those um, those Very banks nice. in order to, to 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 make payments in sterling, to settle payments in sterling. Whereas in Hong Kong, every bank with a banking license needs to have an account with the HKMA, and so mm -hmm. it's a very flat structure. So so. The main point is different, different countries operate differently um, and you can't just take some paradigm, something that you've learned from one country and apply it globally. Okay. That's what makes it interesting. So it doesn't work very well with our blockchain world, does it? <laughs> um, so my question is, you know, if we start to extend, we zoom forward a couple of years here, everything works great, um, you've done a great job and, and everybody, all major central banks are using Corda for CBDC. The next logical step is how do you get individuals? Um, a, do you kind of agree with that? And B, why would somebody use Corda versus using a, uh, a stable coin that lives in something like an Ethereum? Sure, good question. I mean, I mean first you have to say, should um, the, the, the retail public or, or, or corporates or non-banks, uh, entities not under the um, kind of licensing regime of the central bank and the regulators, should they have digital access to the central bank? Should they be, mm -hmm. should they be able to pay each other in central bank money um, or is the current system where they pay each other using you know, deposits in a commercial bank, is that okay? Mm -hmm. um, so first you have, to, you have to think, should we do this? Before you even address the, the, the question of what technology should we use, should we use tokens or should we use account balances? Um, so, so currently corporates pay each other by instructing their commercial bank, saying make a payment to, mm -hmm. to another corporate, and, and that, that seems to be okay. Um, however, what we saw in the financial crisis was um, actually, corporates were, were, were those cash-rich corporates were actually quite nervous of which banks they banked with because they weren't sure who was going to go bankrupt. So in that case, maybe um, they they do want a, a less risky form of money, and, and money issued by the central bank is less risky than money um, in a uh, or issued by a commercial bank, just because mm -hmm. commercial banks can uh, and do fail. 
um, in, in, in some countries. Um, so first you've got to ask yourself, you know, is this something we want to do? And, and if so, you know, how do you define this kind of money? Should, should digital central bank money have an interest rate? Should it be anonymous? Because of course physical cash, which is issued by the central bank in most countries, but not in all, mm -hmm. um, uh, that, that doesn't have an interest rate. You know, if you put 10 pounds on the table, it doesn't become 11 after a year. Um, and so it doesn't, it doesn't have an, in, an intrinsic interest rate and it is anonymous. I don't have to write my name on it and prove my address when I give it to you. Mm -hmm. um, but in the digital world, often it is the case that identity flows with it. Um, and that creates its own problems when, when uh, companies get hacked. So a couple of years ago, we saw Target get hacked and all the, yeah. all the credit card details. Um, and of course, these are sold on the dark net so for, 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 for Bitcoin sometimes. <laughs> well, then why do you even need the CBDC if you have Bitcoin to buy the stuff? <laughs> um, so, so firstly, you ask, um, you know, do we need this? Uh, then you define the money. How does it work? How should it work? Should there be limits? Should you be able to make anonymous transactions below a certain threshold? Uh, and above that threshold, someone else has to sign it off or someone else has visibility on that. Um, and then once you've worked through all the questions of you know, privacy, interest rates, um, is it, should it replace cash or should it complement cash? Should you keep physical cash going? Because physical cash is a great uh, disaster recovery tool. You, you can't really cyber attack physical cash like you can cyber attack digital uh, payment services. Um, uh, you, you go through all of these questions and you land on an answer, yes, yes the central bank should um, uh, create digital currency that, 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 uh, that a household can, can use. Then you say, well, should it be a token on a distributed ledger or should it be a, a, a balance in an account? Um, if you go the token route, then you start saying, well, should it be on Corda? Should it be on something else? Okay. Lots to think about here. Lots to think about. Let's shift. Tell me about your book. It's yellow. It's beautiful. Thank you. So, so this book, so I've been writing a blog called um, uh, uh, bitsonblocks.net um, since about 2015, um, I, I, I think. I actually wrote the, 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 the reason I started writing the blog was I, I, I wrote an article about Ripple. Uh, that was published on Coindesk. It's one of Coindesk's earliest articles explaining what Ripple is. Did you get attacked by the XRP army? There wasn't an XRP. This was pre-army. This is pre-army. Pre -army, yeah. This, this is, is militia. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they were quite happy with this because I was explaining how um, Ripple works. And the reason I wrote this was because I didn't understand how it worked. So uh, for me, when I really want to understand something, I write about it and try and explain it. Um, so, so I wrote this article and then, and then I started thinking, I'd left um, uh, Itbit and I was like, well, what should I do with my time? Well, I want to learn about all these things, you know, Bitcoins, blockchains, Ethereum and so on. So I decided to start this blog. Um, about this time last year, so in December, uh, to, to, uh, in December 2017, um, a publisher approached me through my blog, through the contact page um, and said, hey, we like your style. Um, we want a book about Bitcoins. If you write one, we'll publish it for you. And, and, and so for me, that was the, that was the kind of uh, the, that was the calling card. So I just said, yes, yeah, sure, absolutely. I was so flattered. Um, and I started writing this book. It's, it's fresh content. It's not just my blog recycled. Um, because the way, we, um, the way we describe these things, the way I describe these things has evolved over time and the words we use has, has, has changed. Um, so the book is, uh, I've, I've intended the book to be read by people either joining the industry or even those who've been in the industry for quite a long time, um, there's, there's some historical stuff, there's some, there's some new information, which, which uh, even if you've been in the industry, you may, you may not have come across. Um, but really, it's a primer. It's a primer for um, either students or business people um, who have an interest in this and want to talk um, uh, somewhat intelligently uh, about this topic. If you read the book, you should be confident enough to talk about this credibly at a, at a cocktail party or something like that. Um, and I know that's something like one of the most frequently asked questions that I get, and I think Simon and, uh, probably feels similar, is, um, and Simon's sitting next to me as I record for our next stuff, 
he's waving at everyone, um, is, you know, how do I get started? I'm, I'm new into, to this. I think it's interesting. Um, read Anthony's book, uh, Nothing But Glowing Reviews. It is the antithesis of uh, blockchain revolution type books where they're going to talk about it's everything under the sun. It's hard cold facts. Some of it's quite technical, but you do a very good job at introducing that and bringing it to a level where I think most people can grasp. Sure. So even my mo my mother read it and, and said, I, I now finally understand what you do for a living, uh, which is great. So so what I've intended to do is, is provide um, an, a number of chapters, so f uh, which gives you the building blocks to understand the whole technology. Because as we know, blockchain is is a mishmash of lots and lots of different topics. And you have to understand a, a little bit about lots of different things to get the full picture. So I cover... You know, some, firstly, some definitions. Then I talk about the history of money, physical and digital money, gold standards, fiat currency, what it all is, pegs. Uh, pegs currency pegs are quite interesting at, at the moment because of the interest in stable coins. Mm -hmm. um, then I talk about digital money, how payments are made um, in, 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 the current, in the current world. And it's actually very interesting. I've worked in consulting and I've worked in banking. And it's, it's, it struck me as, as odd how little people knew who work in the industry, people who work in the industry, they don't know how a bank pays another bank. So if you and I bank at different banks and I pay you, they just haven't thought of like, how do the banks settle up? And no, the answer isn't that bank A puts a bunch of banknotes in a van and sends it to bank B and that's how they settle. Um, no, they use Visa. <laughs> they use Swift, right? You wave, your, you wave your hands and say Swift. But here I kind of really clarify how um, banks pay each other, both within uh, a country and across borders. So, so um, uh, so international payments. Then I do a little bit about cryptography. Apparently, uh, so, so unfortunately, you have to understand a little bit about cryptography to understand hashing and mining and all of those concepts. So I give you just enough uh, to understand that. I explain why it's always Alice and Bob. Have you, ever, have you ever asked that question? Why is it always Alice and Bob? Why is it always you know? Alice and Bob? Well, read my book and you'll find <laughs> out, Colin. Um, and so, so then with, with those building blocks, then I talk about cryptocurrencies, Bitcoins, uh, Ethereum, forks. There have been lots of forks recently. So, so actually forks mean lots of different things. And I was actually really happy that you explained that because that is something that, you know, what is a fork and people use it in different contexts. So it's, it's nice to be able to split that down and say, there's the notion of a soft fork, a, a hard fork, just forking in a repository. A chain split, a code fork. Yeah, I've, and, and people use the word fork to mean lots of different things. So I try and be a bit pedantic here just to... Just to um, well, you're nothing if not pedantic, right? That's my middle name, Anthony <laughs> Pedantic Lewis. Yeah, that's, at least that's what my wife says. Um, and, then, and then we talk about Bitcoin Cash and Ethereum Classic as the kind of classic forks. Um, then I go into a little bit about digital tokens. And of course, the, the terminology we use is, is changing all the time. Um, so, you know, in, in a year's time, I might have to refresh this. So everyone will have to go out and buy a new book, which is great for me. So can I buy this on a subscription model or are you only accepting Bitcoin for it? <laughs> I only accept Bitcoin for subscriptions. <laughs> no, you can buy it on, um, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones, um, Kindle, uh, hardback. Um, yeah, so digital tokens, I, I do blockchain technology. I talk a little, about enterprise, uh, a little bit about enterprise blockchains and you know, what is blockchain. Um, uh, initial coin offerings, there's a little section on there. Never heard of them. No, I, di I didn't want to talk about them because... Um, yeah, I just, I'm just not that much of a fan of them. Uh, but my publisher said, yeah, they're really trendy at the moment, so you've got to include a section. Maybe so, in the next version, you'll probably take them out. Yeah, I might take them <laughs> Security token offerings. I, I actually do have, yeah, I do have a theory. They will come back in, in a slightly different form. Tell me about that. Um, yeah, so, so right now, um, so previously, the, the, the previous wave of ICOs or initial coin offerings, um, no one quantified... Uh, exactly what one token would buy you. So to give you to give you an example, you might do a cloud. There might be a cloud storage um, ICO without naming any names, and you say, right. So I've got a token, and the token gives me access to cloud storage. 
And that's it. And no one said, wait, wait, when do I get access? How much access do I get? And for how long? Because I know when I pay Apple, I know that I've got to pay, you know, I don't know what it is, $2.99 um, per month. And that gives me so many gigabytes of data uh, mm. today. Um, but, but no one's ever told me how, how much one token will get me. I think that's a deliberate ploy to let the, the value fluctuate and hopefully go up. Um, uh, hopefully for, for both the investors, I guess, and, and, and the issuer. Um, but they were, it was never quantified. Now, if, you know, if Amazon said to you, here, buy some Amazon coin and, and you can redeem that at some stage in the future for, for books, you'd be like, well, how many books do I get? When do I get them? Um, and, 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 and therefore you can price how much one coin, how much you should pay for a coin. If, a, if an Amazon coin got you a book, then you'd probably pay somewhere between you know, 2 and $30 for it. You wouldn't pay $5,000 for it, and you wouldn't mm. pay one cent for it. That'd probably be too cheap for a book. Um, uh, so, so as soon as you quantify it, then you, then you, um, you kind of cap the price. I think, and, and I think investors, um, I'm using air quotes here, but investors are now savvy um, to that. So I think the next generation of, um, of ICOs will be more quantified. So you'll say one token will get you this um, at a certain point in time, and they'll quantify what it'll get you. Um, uh, and, and it'll be more like a Kickstarter where you pre-sell something, um, but with transferability. So I can then, there's a liquid market, I can then sell that, uh, that thing to you. You know, with, with, with Kickstarter, I, I've done a bunch of them. Um, and I know that I'll get something, you know, representing an electronic skateboard or something. Um, and I know it'll come, you know, they say a year, so it might take two or three years because it's Kickstarter. But I, at least I know I'll get one skateboard, not 10 or 20 or half or, or something. Um, but I've never been able to transfer that to someone else and say, right, um, I'm, I'm just going to sell this thing to you. And, and Colin, you now receive the skateboard whenever it comes. So I think the next generation of ICOs will quantify what a token gets you. And it'll be more like a, a, a pre-sale of fund-specific items, um, but just kind of on steroids where, where you get the transferability, which, which massively increases... How, how likely you are to want to buy this. If you know you can sell it when you need to, when you want to, um, and when the project is starting to take shape, you might be more willing to invest. Well, that's what we're hoping for. So that's ICOs. Um, then then I just talk a little bit about the dangers of investing in cryptocurrencies, um, because ev a lot of the other books um, talk about how wonderful it is to buy these things, how they're going to change the world, but not many of them talk about the risks. So I'd just like to bring that balance to the, to the narrative. Great. Anthony Lewis? Director of Research at R3 and author of The Basics of Bitcoin and Blockchains. Thank you very much for coming on. And everybody go out and buy tons of bags of these books. Buy loads of them. Buy loads of Christmas. Them. Thank you very much. Thank you, Colin. Alrighty, thank you very much to Anthony and to Colin. Peace be upon his field. Uh, just to remind you, everybody, uh, this podcast is made by 11FS, and we are the challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. And my goodness, what a year we've had. It's been a whole bunch of fun. If you want to get involved or know what it is we do or just come talk to me, I'm simon at 11fs.com. Um, John, where can people find out more about you? You can find me on Twitter, John D. Tree. Uh, at John D. Tree, that one's not so easy. Uh, probably the easiest place to find me is qz.com. qz.com. That's a nice short URL. Mm. Tina, how about your good self? You can find me on Twitter at, at Tina Taylor or uh, check out gdf.io. 
do check that out, people. Alrighty. Um, and if you're listening, why not throw us a review? We understand um, five stars is a hard thing to click, but you can do it. You can reach into iTunes. You can go to that section that goes rate and review, and you can just click five stars. And you can do it. You can leave a comment, too, about Colin and his fields and all kinds of good stuff. Um, I just want to thank our amazing production team here at 11FS, producer Petrit, um, and, of course, Alex Woodhouse, our editor, and Michael Bailey standing around with a camera. Shout out to Michael Bailey. Michael freaking Bailey, everybody. What a guy. Um, and if you haven't already, do check out our previous episode with the one and only Vitalik Buter in episode 76. Uh, we talked decentralizing ETH, scaling, what does proof of stake mean, how's Casper coming along, uh, how is it going to work with sharding, how's that all going, what's his role going to be in the future. Uh, so if you like that, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Thank you very much for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye.